0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have invited voices voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. Over the past 31 years, the Town Hall Forum has welcomed hundreds of distinguished speakers, but tonight's guest is the one for whom the expression, he needs no introduction, was coined. He's been a part of our lives for decades, and for that reason, and because you're eager to hear from him and not from me, I will be brief. Tom Brokaw is a Peabody Emmy and DuPont Award winning journalist who served as anchor and managing editor of the NBC Nightly News, from 1983 to 2005. Before that, he served as a White House correspondent and as anchor of the Today Show. He continues to report for NBC News, producing documentaries and specials, and lending his expert commentary to breaking news events. He's the author of five books, including the bestseller, The Greatest Generation. Tonight, he's here to explore the themes in his newest book, The Time of Our Lives, A Conversation about America. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Tom Brokaw.
1: Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you all very much for that very warm welcome. I am indeed touched and moved. I could not help but sit back here and think about my mother who will be 94 this coming weekend. This is the fulfillment of her lifelong dream. Her son's in a pulpit with a full congregation. (laughs) There's rarely an intersection between journalism and religion, so I really have to take advantage of it while I can. (laughs) I must tell you as well that I lost a dear friend recently, one of the greatest journalists I had ever known. And as I sat here looking out at this setting, especially, and all of you, and reflected on what brings you not just to this evening, but of course to Sunday morning services, one of the most memorable interviews that I ever was witness to involved my friend Aubrey Morris. He was a radio reporter in Atlanta, Georgia. He was a man who was everywhere at once with a high-pitched voice and totally fearless about asking anyone any question. While we were there, some of you may remember, in 1965 there was a cover of Time Magazine that posed the question, is God dead? An Emory philosopher had written this thesis that God may in fact may not exist, he may be dead. And as you might expect across the country, but especially in the South, that caused great reverberations. The magazine had been out about three days when Billy Graham came to town in Atlanta. (laughs) And in those days, we didn't have jetways. You just got off the airplane and walked down the stairs. And of course, all the reporters in the greater Atlanta area were out there to see Dr. Graham. And as he stood, as he strode down that stairwell and with all of his uh, pulpit majesty, we were all kind of stuck in place, except for Aubrey, who raced forward with his tape recorder running, and he said, Dr. Graham, Dr. Graham, is God dead? (laughs) And Billy Graham drew himself up and said, well, of course not, son. And Aubrey, never uh, at a loss for a follow-up question, said, Dr. Graham, Dr. Graham, how do you know God is not dead? (laughs) Billy Graham put his arm around Aubrey and said, because I talked to him this morning. <laughs> I uh, feel like I come home when I come back to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area into the upper Midwest. Um, uh, both sides of my family had roots here uh, in the railroading business before they struck out for the prairie. One of my great grandfathers worked at General Mills and was an ardent fan, I'm told, of the old Minneapolis Millers baseball team. We would come here when I was a child and go to the Nankin restaurant. <laughs> there was nothing more exotic than that, except, <laughs> except maybe getting a tray at the Forum Cafeteria. <laughs> I saw Harry Belafonte perform downtown. I used to carry the Minneapolis Tribune out in the small towns of South Dakota, sell enough customers every year, new customers, so I'd get on the milk-run train and ride it into Minneapolis. They'd meet me at the Milwaukee Road Station early in the morning. I was 12 years old at the time, and I'd go see the Golden Gophers play with my hero, Paul Giel. <laughs> so I have these great roots and enormous attachment to Minneapolis. When our daughter was a senior at Duke, Duke came here to play in the N.C.2A Final Four, and they were heavily favored to win the championship. So we had said to Sarah, if Duke gets in, we're going. And Meredith and I flew out from New York, and Sarah and a couple of her pals were coming in from Raleigh-Durham. As Meredith and I got off the plane, I said to her, and she agreed with me, I said, this will always be my idea of a big city. This is kind of the Athens of my youth, this cosmopolitan place, And of course, you were in a real renewal at that time. And it was very exciting for me to be here. And we checked into the hotel. And Sarah and her pals came in, all of whom had been raised in New York. (laughs) And Sarah grabbed me and said, hey, Dad, cute little city out here. (laughs) I knew then that the broke-out life had changed in ways that would be hard to describe to her. But we did, when they were young, send our daughters every summer to Camp Lake Hubert up near Brainerd because we wanted them to be a part of the Minnesota and the Upper Midwest experience. And then they brought a lot of their New York friends as well. And now I'm happy to say that our grandchildren are going to that camp from San Francisco and Southern California we have two new ones who are in New York, and at some point they'll be coming to Minnesota as well. And knowing them, they'll be returning with the accents from Fargo as well at the end of the <laughs> summer. I say all of that as a way of introducing how I came to write this book. Because what I've just outlined for you is the beginning of an arc of life that I could not have imagined when I was growing up in South Dakota products of the greatest generation in working-class environments and filled with a lot of ambition and a sense of adventure that got fulfilled beyond my wildest imagination. And when I wrote The Greatest Generation, I was paying tribute to those people who made that possible in so many ways. And I had been, I suppose, not as aware of that as I needed to have been until I went to Normandy and walked the beaches with the veterans and then began to think about the my own parents and their experiences, and the people who had raised me in effect in a wider sense in our communities, the coaches and the wives, the businessmen on Main Street, the people who just wanted to make life better for their children and for the next generation. And they did it in the most modest way. And they did it with the values that they had grown up with and earned in the hardest ways during the Great Depression and the war. They always saved something at the end of the week out of their paycheck. My father was a hard-hat construction worker and my father-in-law, a physician, they were joined at the hip. There was no distinction between white collar and blue collar in Yankton, South Dakota. They had the same values and saw the world pretty much the same way. And then we began to lose our way in a sense. And so when I wrote The Greatest Generation, the baby boomers, the offspring of that generation, were reasonably stunned by what they were seeing. And they were trying to come to grips with it and thinking about it, some. And then I got to be the age of my parents. And I began to think about it more acutely, I suppose. And two or three experiences really led me to write this book. One came in the spring of 2009, on the 65th anniversary of Normandy, when I went with other fellow Midwesterners who had gone on to succeed in life as very prominent lawyers and, uh, and people who worked in NGOs, non-governmental organizations around the world. We are all the same age. We'd all been beneficiaries and we'd had the lives that we could not have imagined, but we went to Normandy and it's always a leveling experience. And I went from there to Dresden the German city that had been firebombed to almost complete destruction at the end of World War II and then went behind communist lines for the next 40 years. But it was a city that was in revival. I went there to interview the new president of the United States, an African American. And as someone who covered the Civil Rights Movement and had great hope in the 1960s, I could not have thought at that time, however, that we would elect an African American president in my lifetime. And as we stood there and talked about where we were, I happened to mention to him casually, I've just come from Berlin, Mr. President. I was there the night the wall came down. I had the good fortune of being the only correspondent on the scene, and he put his arm on my hand on my shoulder and said, Oh Tom, I remember I was in law school at the time. I thought, oh my God. <laughs> he was in law school at the time. So I thought of all that I had experienced and and also what I had witnessed having been born in 1940. The Great War, the revival of America, the end of the Soviet Union, the renewal of America in so many ways, the liberation of all of us from the great shame of racial segregation because of the vision and the courage and the faith that he had in nonviolence and the rule of law of Dr. Martin Luther King. Then I looked at these four precious children who have entered our lives, my grandchildren. And at the end of the 20th century, which had always been called the American century, I was a little uncertain about what to expect next. Then 9-11 happened, and nothing has been quite the same since then. We have seemed in so many ways to be disoriented about where we need to go, and how we're gonna get there, and who we are. The most troubling question that I encounter almost Anywhere I go now comes from young parents and also grandparents and they're saying, I worry that our children or our grandchildren won't have the lives that we've had. And that's an essential part of the American dream. So I have been trying to think about how I can respond to that and how we all ought to talk about that. And one of the conclusions that I've come to and I try to address it in this book is that we have to recalibrate what that means for us and for the world for that matter. That ought not to be a quantitative response. That is, oh, they'll always have more money, more cars, larger houses than preceding generations. We ought to make it a qualitative question. How do we find common ground in this immigrant nation that has always proved to be at its best when the challenges are the greatest. And it's at its best when it's more than the sum of its parts. When it's able to uh, hang on to individual ideologies or philosophies or faiths or occupations or geographical presence, but find a way forward together. And it seems to me that we've lost our bearings on that count. And there's a lot of anxiety in the land as a result of The downturn in the economy, the nightmare that is so for so many people in America of attempting to be a homeowner and finding out that they're now manacled to a home that has half the value of the mortgage that they paid for, the nightmare for so many people who thought once they joined a corporation that it would be a compact between that corporation and them for a long time, That the benefits that they were earning would always be there, or that the job would be there for them. The fact is that objectively speaking, so many of the pieces of America that we had always felt that we could count on have changed. And changed dramatically. The real question for all of us is, can we adapt to that change? Can we then begin to make the changes that are required in that adaptation? in which we can meet those challenges at the moment it seems to me that we're kind of stuck in first gear there's too much shouting and too little listening there's too little determination in fact to find that common ground and to move forward the opening line in this book is what happened to the america that i thought i knew because in some ways we've kind of lost our confidence I've never been witness to that before in this country. Confidence in our institutions of governance, in Washington, D.C. especially. Confidence in the ability of the country to recover economically. Those are the challenges that are before us, and so I have kind of a shorthand for how we can begin to deal with it. The phrase that I've been using is that we all have to re-enlist as citizens. We have to acknowledge the fact that we are on a different playing field now. It is a smaller planet with more people. When we had emerged from economic downturns in the latter part of the 20th century in the past, we still pretty much owned that playing field. Now we have a rising China, and India, and Brazil, and Russia, and emerging nations as well. We're trying to determine how we can reorder the American economic industrial base so that we can return to some form of manufacturing that will provide jobs for people. And so what I do is begin by concentrating on those immediate challenges and offering some suggestions about housing, about fixing the education system in America, about finding ways in our political culture that at the end of the day, the people can say, over a drink or just in a quiet caucus. OK, we had it out all day long. What are we left with here? How do we move forward? I suppose one of the most unsettling experiences that I've had in Washington was, a, in many ways, an incidental one. But it spoke volumes about what's going on. It came a couple of years ago when I was on Capitol Hill and two button bright young men came up to me in their blue suits and red ties. You would know the type. They were thrilled to be in Washington. They said, Mr. Brokaw, we want to talk to you about the old days. I think that they meant 1998. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I said, what do you want to know? And they said, well, I'm a Republican. He's a Democrat. He's my best friend. We go to Georgetown every night and argue politics. His boss won't talk to my boss. My boss won't talk to his boss. And I said, it was not always like that. But that is a prescription for not just temporary, but permanent deadlock. So before I take your questions, let me leave you with a very recent demonstration of overcoming adversity, about optimism, about patriotism, in the body of one man that I heard on Saturday night when I was in St. Louis at a Veterans Benefit let me give you the context for that. This has been a big issue for me for some time. We're in the two longest wars in our nation's history Iraq and Afghanistan, 10 years apiece, all being fought by less than 1% of the population. All volunteers, most of them from working class and middle class families. For the rest of us, it's out of sight, out of mind if we so choose. No sacrifices were asked of the rest of us as we went into those wars or in the course of them. Thousands of lives have been lost, and many more thousands have returned to America physically or emotionally damaged. And yet, within that core of men and women, there is the essence of the American character. It was demonstrated for me the other night in St. Louis at an event for The Mission Continues, organized by my friend Eric Greitens, modest young man with nothing to be modest about he went from st louis to duke university became a boxing champion in the nc2a and then a road scholar then he traveled to africa on his own with his camera and his passion and wrote a prize-winning book about the children of war then he became a navy seal and after serving in iraq and afghanistan he came home and became a white house fellow he could have done anything he wanted to do in the world but he went to visit his old team members who were still in VA hospitals, having been so seriously wounded. And to a man, they said to him, sir, all I want to do is get out of here and serve again. With my unit, that may not be possible. I've got to find a way to serve. So he started something called The Mission Continues. Second line, not a charity, but a challenge to train these veterans to work in boys and girls clubs and in public service organizations. And it's caught on across the country. So at the benefit, the other night in St. Louis, was a very large African-American man dressed in a very sateen-like white suit. He looked like he might have been Jay-Z's rival in the hip-hop world. But he was instantly charismatic when he came up to greet me. And I noticed that he had a prosthesis instead of a, a right hand. And it was, by the way, decorated in red, white, and blue with stars. I also noticed that he was missing a leg below the knee and he seemed to be blind in his right eye. But there was a lot of activity before we sat down. We didn't have much of a chance to talk, but we were seated next to each other at dinner. And I said to him, where'd you get hit? And he said, outside of Baghdad. And I said, what was it, an IED? And he said, no, an RPG, direct hit. And then I got shot eight times, quite matter of factly. Then he got up to set the tone for the evening and he introduced himself. I am Major Somar Smith, otherwise known as the A-Train. I enlisted in the United States Army, but I demonstrated enough ability that they promoted me eventually to major. And I was running a team outside of Baghdad when our team came under very heavy assault from a concentrated force of Al-Qaeda, we later learned, firing everything from mortars to RPGs and heavy weapons fire. We were fighting back when I noticed in our bunker two of our guys were outside the wire and I went outside to try to find them. When I stepped outside, I got hit by an RPG in my right hip. Then I got shot eight times, including through the head. I was buried beneath the rubble from all the explosions, and when my guys finally drove off the attackers, they came out, took one look at me, and zipped me into a body bag declaring me dead. And then they began to patch up everyone around us. When they realized they didn't have my dog tags, so they unzipped the body bag to get my dog tags, grabbed them, and then the medic said, he may be alive. And in fact, I was still hanging on. But they grabbed my dog tags, and with that, my blood type, and gave me the wrong blood type, and I went into a coma for 64 days. And it took me two and a half years to put my body back together again. And I lost my wife in the meantime. She left me. And I was in a pretty depressed state, but I'd always been an athlete and I thought, how do I make a comeback? Let me start there. I am the A train. I am the National Paralympics heavyweight taekwondo and karate and martial arts champion. So if any of you want to challenge this story, meet me right up here right now. (laughs) And then at the end, he said, now you've heard my story, let me remind you who I am. I am the A train, Major Sylmar Smith, and I approve this message. (laughs) The whole language, the spirit, the courage that he showed, not just in overcoming his own physical wounds, but the emotional turmoil that he went through. How we learned from that, the pain and suffering that gave him a new perspective on life. He said in a way that he was born again. And I've heard so many of these veterans, including here in Minnesota, you have a member of the state legislature who lost both legs. Very courageous young man who's talked about that. He said, I was a knucklehead before I went in the Army, I came back a whole man, even though I'm missing my legs. It seems to me that if they can go through all of that. And return to this country and want to serve again want to be a part of who we are and hang on to the american dream the least that we can do is stand beside them and say a how can we help and b how do we get to be part of your squad how do we go forward from here because 100 years from now historians will look back on this time and they'll make a judgment not just about Barack Obama, or the Tea Party, or Herman Cain and his difficulties this week, or Mitt Romney, or any of the other Republican candidates. They're going to make a judgment about all of us, just as I made a judgment about all the people in the greatest generation, about how they faced the challenges of their time and overcame them, won the greatest war in the history of mankind, saved the world, came home, and gave us the country that we have today. It seems to me. That, that is how we should begin the 21st century. And those are the questions that we should be asking. And in this book, you'll read many stories in which just that is being done. They're inspirational. Some of them are difficult. But it's a collection of stories about people who are getting on with the job of advancing their lives and thereby advancing their nation. But at the same time, I lay out in cold statistical terms, and also examine the policies that got us to where we are about how we need to address that. It's a new era in the world, and we have to acknowledge that. And finally, I'll just leave you with one final story from the book that is toward the end. I'm not gonna give it all away, but as a grandparent, I look at my grandchildren, and I say 50 years from now, what will they say about their grandparents and what we left them? And they show wisdom, as all grandparents know, my wife and I are very active outdoors people. We've done a lot of backpacking and climbing and, and horseback riding into the wilderness and gone up just the two of us and spent days on end back there just surviving by our wits a lot. So we couldn't wait to introduce our grandchildren to the beginning of that idea. We may have rushed it a little bit. They were just five and seven when we said we're gonna take an overnight camping trip. We're gonna Go into the mountains and the wilderness of Montana because we know there's a backcountry cabin, just a little shelter, really, where you can spend the night. We'll cook out. We'll make our way off the trail. Probably we'll get to see some game. There was a little mild complaining, pretty tough hike. That was a very tough hike. And they got there and we cooked out. And they live in San Francisco. They're city kids. They're kind of looking around, wondering about all this, but they're being quite brave. And then Meredith, who's called Nan by them, Said, so, okay, here's the deal, girls. Um, we're gonna let you sleep in the cabin on your sleeping bags. You get little headlamps, uh, because it's really only room for a couple of people. And there, Tom and I will be just outside, uh, sleeping on the ground in our sleeping bags, but you'll be fine in there, don't worry about it. And they were five and seven at the time. And we put them in there, and Meredith, the sun goes down, and it gets pitch black, of course. And Meredith said, do you hear that? And I said, I do, there was a real buzz going on in the cabin, they're whispering back and forth and all of a sudden the youngest of the two arrived next to our sleeping bags and said in the most commanding voice imaginable to my wife, Nan, we need an adult in here now. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I think the country needs an adult in here now, thank you all very much.
0: Thank you, Tom Brokaw. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about us online at WestminsterForum.org, and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker tonight is Tom Brokaw, journalist and author of the book The Time of Our Lives, A Conversation with America, just released by Random House. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite you to join us for our next forum on Thursday, December 8th, at noon, when Chris Matthews will be our guest. And now, Mr. Brokaw, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Would you care to comment, as a professional in the field, what uh, contribution, the media has uh, given to the state of the nation today?
1: Well, (laughs) if you listen to Herman Cain uh, this past week, we are responsible for it all, or for others as well. That's been going on as long as I've been in journalism. It's just easy to point to us, and sometimes situations are exacerbated. And of course, now the megaphone is so much larger than it used to be, and there is a great deal more opinion. That's indisputable. You know, when the sun goes down on Fox or on MSNBC, people are out there, left and right, kind of stirring things up. But let me surprise you with something. It It really depends on the rest of us to be more proactive in where we get our news and to develop filters within our families and within ourselves about Is this reliable? Does it hold up over time? Can I count on this? And if you do that, we have the richest journalistic environment we've ever had in our lifetime because of the internet. I get up in the morning, go online, and read, in addition to the papers that I read in print in New York, I read the Financial Times. I have some interest in what's going on in the Middle East, so I generally read the Middle East think tanks and a lot of the offerings of the foreign ministries in that part of the world. I'm on the board of the Council of Foreign Relations. We've got a terrific website that has both a long view and a quick view of of what has been happening. And then I read as I did before I came here, you know, the Minneapolis Tribune. I was out here a couple of years ago to talk to Sigma Delta Chi. And I happen to like one of your hunting and sporting writers by the name of Dennis Anderson. I like to read his columns about what's going on. And I read my hometown newspaper in Yankton, you know, see how the old football team is doing, how my friends are doing. We never had that capacity before, but it requires us to be proactive consumers to put as much effort into finding out where our news comes from and whether it is useful to us as we do into buying a new flat screen television or a camera or anything else. We've got to be more active as consumers.
0: You speak of us as citizens re-enlisting in our country. How do you propel individuals to do that when our own government does not seem to be enlisted in the country for which they work? Yeah.
1: Well, however you feel, this, this may surprise you as well. Let me give you an example of how things can change. Uh, let me begin with a political example. However you feel, individually or collectively, about the Tea Party. Tea Party played by the rules. They got angry, they got organized, they got to Washington. They stayed on message, and they stayed disciplined. That's why they're dominating the debate out of proportion to their numbers, if you look at all the national polls about whether people agree with them or not. Because they, it is a ground-up movement. It started out in America. And when people say to me, I don't think you can change things that are this big from the ground up. Let me give you two more recent examples. There was a mother who lost her daughter to, dr- to a drunk driver. Her name was Candace Leitner, we all know who she is now. She started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She changed the culture in America of drinking and driving. She profoundly changed the rules and the laws about driving while intoxicated. There are stiff penalties, people don't get driven home now by the cops, they get arrested and put in jail and they lose their licenses, bars are responsible. It's had a huge impact in this country and thousands of lives have been changed. Two years ago, I went out to South Dakota at the request of a friend who was a breast cancer survivor to help her because she was the chair of Coleman Race for the Cure. I kind of knew what it was, but I was not prepared on that Saturday morning in Vermilion, South Dakota, for 4,000 people to show up to race for the cure and to make contributions. And the next day, I was in New York at a Giants game, New York Giants game, and everyone ran on the field these big, tough offensive and defensive linemen and the middle linebackers with pink chin straps and pink shoelaces to remind us of what's going on. Those are just three examples of how it can happen from the ground up. But what we need to do is spread that out a little bit, I think, in this political culture. And we can get involved by saying to these people who are running for public office, I want you to make a judgment beyond just a very narrow interest it seems to define what your candidacy is and that's across the political spectrum find out who they are talking to if they're liberal democrats are they talking to the conservative democrats are they trying to find some common ground do they do that when they come to the community or do they just retreat to an ideological bunker of some kind i cite two of my heroes in this book one is john gardner who founded common cause he was a a man who served in World War II as a Marine. He was a brilliant psychologist from Stanford. He served in Republican and Democratic administrations on major boards. And in Common Cause, he said that pluralism without compromise is a form of tyranny. The other man is Bart Giamatti, the former president of Yale who became the baseball commissioner. He used to say "Incoming classes, you may be wondering what you should know and whether you know enough. What you need to know as you come here is that you must wish to know. And when you leave here, you ought not to be hostage to someone else's orthodoxy. Think for yourself, reason. But we move lemming-like in our political system sometimes because we get pushed around a little bit.
0: The Minnesota History Center right now has an exhibition on the tumultuous year 1968. We heard a lot of concern back then in those years, late 60s, early 70s, similar to the concerns we're hearing today. What did we learn from that time that can inform us as we find our way forward today?
1: Well, what we learned from that time is that we did emerge from it. It was a deeply divided country. The same baby boomers who were rejecting materialism went on to become founders of the hedge fund industry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The best customers at Mercedes dealers across America. The whole second home thing began in that generation, quite honestly. And the war ended eventually. That's what drove it a lot. Here's a piece of it that we don't pay enough attention to. When the war ended, the military in this country and its reputation and its standing was probably at its lowest stage in the 20th century. And the young captains and majors who were determined to make the military their career decided to go about the business of reforming their institution. And they did that. And as a result, we have now at the top these Brigadier and, and Major Generals who are highly educated, they've got a much different social consciousness than they did then, and when you deal with them, they know about the civilian society and how it ought to work. And that's an, a demonstration of an institution that was reformed from the ground up. There's another big difference between 68 and now. 68, there's a lot of money around. I mean, a lot of the kids who were on the lines uh, for Gene McCarthy or in the anti-war demonstrations, you' would say, you know, I'd go home and my parents would write a check to me, they had, they had a lot of money. Or I was getting student aid, I didn't have to pay it back. There were all kinds of programs that were about in those days. And things were affordable. Meredith and I bought a house in California, our first home, we were two kids from the prairie, we bought a wonderful woodsy nest up in the hills over the San Fernando Valley for $42,500. I was making just a little less than that because I was doing pretty well on television by then. And when I wanted to move up to a larger house down on the beach, I was making a good deal more. And the bank wouldn't give me a mortgage because they said, I, you know, we think you're just a little bit over the line here, Tom, even though you've got this. And, I, and we agreed with them. There was a little bit of a reach, so we didn't do that. That all came crashing down. And a lot of the fear and the anxiety in America today is about the security of economic well-being, about not having it, and both parents working. We've got a debt in this country, a savings rate that is negative. People have more debt than they have net worth in many families. That's a prescription for getting us to where we are now. And that means that they lack confidence and they feel like they're in a bunker of some kind.
0: What do you think of the 99% Occupy Wall Street movement? What role might it play in revitalizing American society and culture?
1: Well, I, when it began, I was intrigued because I'm a student of these kinds of ground-up movements, uh, having covered the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s and then the anti-war movement. So far, it has not been very effective, it seems to me, because it doesn't have a centralizing central theme. There's a kind of a wide range of opinions and no strong leadership. I've heard some very articulate people on the Sunday morning talk shows, but they seem to be more the exception than the rule. I was in Chicago uh, just before I came here, and I was near the Chicago Fed the other day, and there were, on a Sunday, when you'd think there'd be a big protest, there were about 40 people out there banging on on pots and pans and holding up signs saying, honk your horn if you wanna eliminate Wall Street. Well, we're not gonna eliminate Wall Street. And then a lot of them were saying, we want free medicine, we want free medical care and free education. That's not gonna happen either. So they have to get more realistic, I think, and, and have more definition and demonstrate greater leadership at this point. We were all in on this. I mean, the fact is that Republicans will say it was all the fault of the federal government. And Democrats will all say it was all the fault of Wall Street. Fact is, we were all in on it. There was too much excess across the board. People were making imprudent judgments and and decisions about uh, their own personal economic well-being. And we weren't asking enough of our government to reflect the reality of what we were dealing with.
0: It seems that it takes a national emergency to unite the nation. Why can't we unite without one?
1: Well, that's a very good question. That's not unique in the long reach of history. We had a moment when we were attacked on 9-11 in which the country came together. There was goodwill and a determination to link arms and find our way through it. But then we sent less than 1% of our population to war, as I indicated earlier, and the rest of us didn't have to pay any price whatsoever. And that means we didn't have to pay higher gasoline taxes to help finance the war, we didn't have to think about cutting back on some of our public expenditures so the money could go to the Defense Department. If there was one enduring lesson about the Vietnam War beyond the insanity of thinking that we could win a civil war in a distant country, it was the guns and butter notion. We went to war on a credit card then, and we paid a terrible price for it. We repeated it again this time. We've spent more than a trillion dollars on these two wars. We were told early on that it would be a pretty surgical kind of war and that we would be able to get revenue from sharing Iraqi oil resources without knowing how completely broken the Iraqi pipeline, broadly speaking, is and how determined the tribal factions are in Iraq to continue the warfare that they've been having with each other for a long, long time, to say nothing of what's going on in Afghanistan.
0: We know what we have lost in these two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. What would you say that we have gained as a nation?
1: Well if you take the long curve optimistic view, you hope that Iraq can hang on and have some kind of a democratic system that can become a model in that part of the world. Uh, That's a long reach yet, the chances are not very good. What we've lost as well there is a whatever we thought about Saddam Hussein, he was a counterweight against Iran. The big concern now is that this has opened the door for Iran. I I always knew that we had to go into Afghanistan and drive al-Qaeda out of there. But any casual student of history knows that that country has been occupied by foreign forces off and on for 2,000 years, and they've always left with their tail tucked between their legs. It's a fascinating country. I love being there, it's terrifying sometimes, but the exhilarating beauty of the place and the resilience of the people. But when you get to these little clay pot villages that they have with no interconnection in terms of infrastructure, highways and so on, in a remote village, there were two examples that I think summed it up for me. One was, I was I was embedded with the special forces in a remote fire base in a very dangerous area and they were out shooting the bad guys by night and by day. We were going into these villages and they were trying to win hearts and minds. And they were trying to persuade one shopkeeper, uh, shopkeeper is a, an exaggeration, as a man had a few aluminum pots and pans and some canned goods, that he ought to be listening to the Iraq, to the Afghan security forces they were trying to train. And when the Americans left, I slipped up beside him with my interpreter and talked to him and I said, what do you think about what they're trying to persuade you to do? And He looked at me, he said, we don't need more guys with guns telling us what to do. He was talking about the Afghans as well as the Americans. It reminded me of what a friend of mine who was a a senior counterterrorism expert in the CIA once said about the Afghans. He said, the problem with the Afghans is that they have reversible turbines. It depends on who's in town uh, when they make a decision about who they're for.
0: Do you, think, do you think if we had the draft as the only way to build our armed forces, we might be engaging in wars that were of shorter duration?
1: I think it would have made a big difference. You'd have more protest if you'd had a draft, but the draft's not going to happen again. Um, it is, it's, a political, it's politically toxic for one thing, and the military doesn't want it. They like motivated people. They don't want people who are dragged reluctantly into the military. They really do want people who are highly motivated. So as a substitute, This is my transition into the book. I have proposed in this book a kind of bold idea to try to start a conversation. I propose that we have six public service academies across America attached to land-grant colleges, like South Dakota State, for example, but also Cornell or Berkeley or Colorado State. They offer three-year programs in a wide variety of areas, both postgraduate and people who are entry-level. And it's a public-private partnership. You have a John Deere Fellow in Third World Agriculture. You have a Caterpillar Fellow in Construction, Johnson & Johnson Fellows in various forms of medicine, either physicians or nurse practitioners, or health technicians of one kind or another. Three years of training. Uh, There are tax credits for the sponsoring private companies. Uh, These young people either are assigned here at home during something like Katrina or the Joplin tornado, or the oil spill on the coast or they go to emerging places and put a new face on America. These warriors that we send into the world are the best I've ever seen but they have incompatible missions. Their job really is to kill the bad guys and they go into a village with their goggles on, Kevlar helmets and vests and heavily locked and loaded weapons and of course it's going to be tough. Meanwhile the Chinese, while we're doing that, the Chinese are all over Africa making deals with governments and tribes and extracting their natural resources, they're all over South America. We're stuck in those two places. We need to change that paradigm. And I would think that there may be an opportunity, especially during an economic downturn, to have a big, bold idea. Because a lot of people, young people especially, don't have a job. They're looking for something to do. They're very adventurous. And we could knit together all the other programs like AmeriCorps and Peace Corps and make it what I call the diplomatic special forces where people could have an impact in other ways around the world. When I was in, in New Orleans after Katrina, uh, I was out with the 82nd Airborne. They were the most effective of the rescue and rebuilding people, and I said to the young major, I said, how long can you stay down here? Because I knew they were getting ready to lift off said, I could get my guys back and get them trained again. This is not the kind of work that we're trained to do, but it's our first responders, for the most part, as the military. We need to separate that out.
0: You referred to our nation in your remarks as a nation of immigrants. To what extent do most Americans still think of our nation as a nation of immigrants?
1: Well, you know, it depends on where you are. Um, I have a friend who, in Montana, a very close friend, but he is uh, in a kind of constant rage about uh, the, uh, the immigration flow coming across the borders illegally from Mexico, and especially the use of Spanish language in products and other things. He said, you know, this country has to assimilate. I said, come with me to Los Angeles, and I'll take you into Koreatown, a thriving, thriving area. All the signs are in Korea. All the merchants speak Korean all day long. Their kids are learning English, and they're doing well. But we've always had that kind of thing going on. But the the numbers now coming across in the Southwest have really lit up that part of the world. And we've not found a way to deal with it, I think, in any sensible fashion, because it's, again, it's, it's really become such a toxic issue from a political point of view for so many people. I did a documentary a couple of years ago in Western Colorado down Valley from Aspen. These were during the good times. And they had a lot of big construction projects, building schools and hotels and highways. And I worked with the contractors about how they would determine who was legal and who wasn't. And it's a nightmare because the, the forgery is really first rate. Then we got inside with illegal Mexican-American immigrants who were living 18 to a house, and living in shifts, keeping the house spotless, learning English, and turning out. The best driver's license I've ever seen manufactured in Colorado. <laughs> and they were showing us how they were doing it, because, and they were working seven days a week, and they'd work every overtime that was going on. And I'd say to the contractor, why don't you just go down a Rifle and get the high school football team to do the dick? And he said, are you kidding? These guys won't do it. He said, they want to play on their video games. He said, we've gone down there. We pay $20 an hour in the summertime on the end of a, you know, on the end of a shovel or to be a hod carrier. They don't want anything to do with it. So I thought that can't be true. And I went out and found some young people who were working on these construction crews, foremen who was, you know, they were 18, 19 years old, summer work. And they said to me, It makes me crazy, but it's true. You know, I can't get my buddies to come do this kind of grunt work. And we pay well. So that's part of the conflict. You know, there isn't a hotel that you go into in America anymore in which the hard work from the bottom up is not being done by a recently arrived immigrant for the most part. So it's, it's an important dialogue to have. Same time, you just can't open the borders you know, and provide the services for everyone. We, but we've got to find some kind of a formulation. Best thing to do is try to improve the Mexican economy so they can make a living at home.
0: Looking back over your remarkable career in journalism, what comes to mind as one of the most gripping stories you've ever covered?
1: Oh, gosh, there have been so many. I, I think from a domestic point of view, as I've reflected on this, um, there were two stories that, uh, that I thought were real test of the American character, each in their distinctive way. Uh, I was a young reporter in the South, having grown up in mostly this white, bread part of the world. And uh, I was covering the civil rights movement. And I've said to young audiences now, you just don't have a full appreciation of how much Dr. King changed America. And he managed to do it without a cell phone, without tweeting, (laughs) without texting anyone. He managed to do it through the power of his conviction and his oratory, his faith in nonviolence, and in the American rule of law. That's a remarkable achievement and we're all a lot better off for it, not just African Americans in this country. And the other piece of it is I think that what this country went through during Watergate, that was a genuine constitutional crisis. We were deeply divided. We had what turned out to be a very felonious president using the White House to break the laws and use the agencies. And the country worked its way through it. There were a lot of strong feelings at the time. when the tapes were revealed and they knew that he was guilty, it was time for him to go. And as Gerald Ford said memorably, our long national nightmare is over and we got on with the business of being America again. And I, I always thought that that was really an astonishingly great tribute to who we are. No tanks were in the street. There were no armed people around the White House. It was a rule of law that prevailed. And that's always been the underpinning of who we are.
0: Your book is a, a story of hope about America that you have. What would you say to young people and we have a number of high schoolers here in the audience tonight at the forum what would you say to young people about your hopes for their future in America?
1: Well, and this is the last question. For one thing, by these way. young people OK, I, the, these young people have their hands on the most transformative technology that I have ever witnessed, which is the new information technology, cyber technology. But I remind them. I remind them that you will not eliminate global poverty by hitting delete. Uh, And no text message will ever replace the first kiss. Keep that in mind. And most of all, which you also need to remember, is that it will do us little good to wire the world if we short-circuit our souls. These are tools, and they're an extension of our hands and our heart. And we use these tools most effectively when we bind ourselves together for common good and move forward together. I think that the outpouring of tributes and affection for Steve Jobs, who was a difficult person. I knew him, and he was not a pleasant personality. But we always gave him a lot of running room because of what he was doing he was a bold visionary who wanted to improve people's lives but he also always had the highest standard of excellence and that was all invented here that whole industry was invented in this country and think of how it's changed the world bill gates steve jobs sergey Brin, larry page at google all those people have made an astonishing impact on history. And they're now beginning to use their wealth, I think, in very constructive ways, but they want to be involved in how they use it and what they're doing with it. So that's what young people should be looking at. How can I then change? You may not invent the next Mac or iPad or smartphone of some kind, but you have the capacity now with this technology to be in touch with people around the world, to be bold in what you're thinking about. And most of all, you have a chance to imprint your time. You have a chance, an opportunity, to say, I was in America when times were tough, and I helped lead the place to a higher ground. Thank you all very much. Thank
0: you, Tom Brokaw.